Lovely to be here, especially on a day like this. We're going to go on with the story of Jesus. We're spending this year looking through uh, the whole story of Jesus' life. Last time we were talking about the, the temptation of Jesus. I'll remind you about that in a moment. And uh, this morning, I think you've already heard, we're talking about Jesus' disciples and how Jesus called his disciples. Collins read one passage about the way in which um, that happened, how Jesus challenged people to drop everything and just follow him completely. But of course, that wasn't the first time he'd met them. <laughs> it had been a pretty outrageous demand if it had, they didn't know a little bit about him first. And so let's read a few more verses from John's Gospel this time uh, about the time when Jesus got to know some of these guys for the first time. John chapter 1 uh, talks about how John the Baptist, you remember him, he was the one who was baptizing people in the wilderness, made a statement one day, and in John chapter 1 and verse 32, you read the whole thing. Then John gave this testimony, it says, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, that's Jesus. I would not have known him, except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. And so baptizing lots of people, John suddenly sees something unusual happen when one person, perhaps the last person he expected, his own distant relative, is baptized in the water and the Holy Spirit comes down him and God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so John tells people about that. Then follow three days, which are all pretty important. Day one, verse 35. The next day, John was there with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they, they followed Jesus, which seems to mean they walked after him. <laughs> Turning around, Jesus saw them following and said, uh, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, uh, where, where, where are you staying? Clearly, they hadn't thought out what they were going to say to him. Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. Who was the other one? Well, probably it was the author of the gospel, John, the brother of James himself. <laughs> and he doesn't mention his name, as he often doesn't through his gospel, because he's a modest guy. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. So that's the day, I guess, of invitation. Come and see. Day two, well, Jesus actually... Uh, well, day one, let's call it the day of investigation. <laughs> day two is the day of invitation when Jesus actually takes the initiative. Verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was in the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him. He found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. Jesus, son of Nazareth, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see, said Philip. Same words. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How, how do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree 
before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And that's day two. Day three starts on chapter two and verse one. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus does the first of his miracles. Interesting, isn't it? He's got the day of investigation when people come and start just following Jesus because they're curious about him, because they've heard about him from somebody else. Day two, Jesus takes the initiative with one guy, Philip, and from that come other things. Nathaniel comes aboard, and all sorts of other things start to happen. And then on day three, Jesus is ready to start doing miracles. The disciples, in other words, are a key part of what Jesus is up to. So we'll have a look at that in a moment. Uh, first of all, the usual trailer for tonight. If you're free tonight, we're doing the second week of looking at the question, do all religions lead to God? We had a look at it uh, a little bit last week and looked at how uh, ridiculous a, quest, uh, a statement it actually is. All religions? Do you mean all religions? Even the ones that involve human sacrifice and uh, oppressing people in all kinds of various ways? All religions? What is a good religion and what's a bad religion? religions lead to God what exactly are they doing what kind of relationship with God do they give you it varies between different faiths as to what they promise to do in terms of introducing you to God and all religions lead to God if they all lead to God what is God like because they all say different things about him and all those different things cancel one another out but having looked at that question last week we now need to uh, fill in a little bit more so we'll be looking at if you want to help other people with this question Five key Bible passages that you ought to know about, a little bit anyhow, if you're going to be able to ground what you say in what the Word of God actually says. We'll look to you at three things you can just bear in your mind that you can actually say to people as an instant response when this question comes up. Because the whole point of this tonight is just to gear people up to be able to answer that question. We'll also look at some of the, the difficult issues like, what about people who've never heard the gospel? What does the Bible say? will happen to them. <laughs> and uh, that was all coming up this something. So if you want to be here, that would be great. Anyway, getting back to the disciples. Last week we were speaking about the temptation of Jesus, you might remember. And we talked about the fact that uh, just after his baptism, when that fantastic moment happened, when the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, and the voice was heard of God saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Straight after that, Jesus goes off into the wilderness and he's tempted for 40 days and nights by the devil. Whoa, that sounds like a strange way to start, doesn't it? But we said, yes, last week, remember, it wasn't the devil's idea, it was God's. It wasn't some accident that happened to Jesus because the devil was lying in wait just to sandbag him. Aha, now you're baptized, I will tempt you. No, it was God's idea. And it was a real temptation. Although Jesus was the son of God, he was tempted in all points like as we are. Testament says he knew what it was like and we basically said this Jesus was tempted in order to show he was perfectly equipped and ready to do the most important job in world history and he was tempted in all sorts of ways but the final three temptations were the ones that were really hot and strong at the end of it and these three final temptations we said sum up all the rest everything else that happened to him the temptation of comfort having an easy life the temptation of power having authority that you wouldn't have otherwise, and the temptation of possessions, having everything you wanted. We said, too, that those temptations reflect each part of your uh, personality, your makeup. You are mind, mind, will, and emotions. That's you. <laughs> and there's one temptation for the will. 
If you're the son of God, command these stones to be made bread. Come on, you're starving. It's been 40 days and 40 nights. Give in. Just have a meal. And Jesus will prove strong enough to withstand the temptation. There's a mind temptation as well. Are you the son of God? Really? Are you sure this is not just some fantasy that that you've invented in your own mind? Okay, cast yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Then we'll see who you are. And Jesus is able to withstand that one too. Then there's emotional temptation. I'll give you everything you want, all of the kingdom of the world, if you will just bow down and worship me. And that's the point at which Jesus says, go away, Satan. I can see what you're up to. I know exactly what you're saying. And my allegiance is to God. That's where my love uh, is, is based. And you're not going to get my emotions uh, in my mind or my will. And the devil is a defeated enemy. We talked about that last week as well. I won't go through that. We won't get this week's talk in. And uh, ended by talking about some of the things that Jesus did that can help us stand against temptation. Discipline yourself. Be prepared to take hardship. Because you're doing what you know is right. Second, know your Bible. Three times Jesus says, it is written, it is written, it is written. And he's able to combat the devil because he knows what he believes. And third, chase the devil away. (laughs) Jesus is able to say, go away, Satan. Get thee behind me. Go, flee. Because the devil is always going to be attempt. But if you stand up to him, he can't answer back. So let's talk about this week then. Straight after this, Jesus comes back, and there is John saying, listen, somebody's coming. Somebody who's greater than I am. Somebody who's going to baptize, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit's fire. And he says, and there he is. And Jesus starts to be recognized. After this, he starts preaching. And uh, Luke says, news about Jesus spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. And out in the open, and in the synagogues too, people started gathering together to hear what this guy had to say because this was fresh, this was original, this is something they'd never heard before. And Jesus immediately starts drawing disciples to be part of his work. And that tells you something about Christianity. Following Jesus starts as a personal encounter. And all of those people whose stories we're tracing this morning, Nathaniel, Philip, John, James, Andrew, Peter, all of them had to have a personal moment when they decided for themselves, yes, this is something I am going to do. You can't just be swept into it by other people. You've got to make that decision for yourself. But what starts as a personal encounter very, very quickly becomes a team operation. God wants us to be together. He wants us to work together. He hasn't given any one Christian all of the gifts that are necessary Uh, to survive in this world or to make the church grow. We all need to work together. And it's been that way down through the the history of the Bible, hasn't it? Do you remember Daniel in Babylon, taken away from his home, a young Hebrew uh, prince who should have been a ruler in his own country. There he is in the the capital of the most sophisticated country in the world, being uh, given a complete brainwashing uh, education to change him into a, a Babylonian instead of a Jew. How does he stand against him? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <laughs> Just to be friends. And together they form a team that are able to withstand all of the pressure that's thrown at them. And you find that again and again through the Bible, don't you? God doesn't work through one man, he works through a team. And uh, it will be the same as us. That's why the church is dead important. And why I am worried about Christians like Jurgen Klopp, manager of Liverpool FC who's a pretty outspoken Christian, but 
decided at the age of 15 that he could honor God better by playing football on a Sunday morning than by belonging to a church. And so he's a Christian, an outspoken Christian, but one who is not under any kind of, of discipline or leadership whatsoever, who's not coming into contact with other Christians whose lives are helping to shape his. And I think he's missing something important. You cannot be a solo, lone ranger Christian. You've got to be part of a group. And this is why Jesus starts getting not just one psychic and one personal assistant or something like that, but a group of people whose lives he can shape and who can be involved in. Billy Graham was once asked, if you were the pastor of a big church just starting your ministry again, what would you do? How would you shape your ministry? You've got this massive church, lots of people, all the money you need to, to, to uh, penetrate a, a massive city and uh, build a reputation and help loads and loads of people. What would you do? And he said this, I think one of the first things I would do would be to get a small group of eight or ten or twelve people around me that would meet a few hours a week and pay the price. It would cost them something in time and effort. I would share with them everything I have over a period of years. Then I would actually have twelve ministers among the lay people who in turn could take eight or ten or twelve more and teach them. And Jesus Christ, I think, set the pattern. He spent most of his time with 12 men. He didn't spend it on a great crowd. In fact, every time he had a great crowd, it seems to me that there weren't many results. The great results, it seems to me, came in this personal interview and in the time he spent with his 12. And so this is what you see Jesus doing here. Building something solid into the lives of a few people. And from that came the great explosion that uh, within 300 years had taken the heathen Roman Empire and turned it into a place where the emperor looked around and said, whoa, Christians here, Christians there, Christians all over the place. <laughs> Can't beat them, join them. <laughs> and so the Roman Empire adopted Christianity as its official religion. The most incredible turnabout in history. Why? Because Jesus spent time with a few guys. Oh, and girls too, but that's another story. So I think there are three stages in the way that Jesus put his disciples together. The first is what we've got the come and see stage, what you read about in John chapter 1, where people are just starting to find out about Jesus. He's not ready yet to tell them to leave everything behind and just come with him to, 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 to put all of their eggs in one basket, but he allows them time to explore and find out what he's about and watch him in action to come and see. The second stage is, you read about it in Mark chapter 3, when he goes out on the hills one night and, and prays pray earnestly to, for his father to give him 12 names this small group of people who are going to be the heart of his ministry in future. And once he's got the 12 people, that's the point at which he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, the great manifesto of discipleship and what it's actually going to mean in future. He's got to get that group in place before all that can happen. And then the third thing is, he sends out 72 more. The movement keeps on growing. In Luke chapter 10, you read about the, the 72 who are sent out to do what he'd sent the 12 out to do originally. And you see the patterns being repeated in new lives now. Six times as many people, and he's able to make a much greater impact just because he's grown this model of discipleship bit by bit as it's gone. So um, I think what we have to ask ourselves in the next 15 minutes or so is this. First of all, what is a disciple? We talk about disciples, but what is a disciple really? Second, how did people become disciples of Jesus? What did we learn from watching the process we've just been describing this morning? And third... What does a disciple look like? Who were these people? What kind of people did Jesus attract? 
So let's put those three questions. First of all, what is a disciple? It's a word that's not much used nowadays, and it's used plenty of times in the Bible, but only in one part of the Bible. It's very interesting. You see, in the New Testament, the word disciple is used 294 times, and 78 of those are in Matthew, 59 are in Mark, 50 are in Luke, 81 are in John, 26 are in Acts, and then nothing. The whole of the rest of the New Testament, all of the letters, the book of Revelation, never uses the word disciple once. Now, why is that? Well, Tom Houston, uh, who was the director of the Bible Society, a very, very uh, acute thinker, said he thought it was because the Gospels are the books that are written for outsiders. The Gospels are written to explain Jesus to a world that doesn't believe. And so they use this word disciple again and again to describe what a Christian is. Because a disciple was an idea that people were familiar with in the ancient world. They understood what was being talked about in a way that we don't when they heard that word. The letters of the New Testament, well, they're the internal memoranda of the Christian church. Those are Christians writing to one another. They've already got the idea, so they don't need that word to explain it and unpack the idea of discipleship for them. They already read it. And so you get other words, saint, believer, brother, sister, those kinds of words uh, used in, in, in the epistles. It amounts to the same thing, but it's a different way of putting it. But the word disciple is the word that's used in the Gospels and Acts again and again to say, this is what being a Christian really means. These are the key things that Christians are shooting for by calling those disciples. What was a disciple then, if they understood the idea in those days? Well, it all started in Babylon. You might remember, 500, nearly 600 years before Jesus was born, the, the, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, and people were dragged away into captivity in Babylon, um, 900 miles away. And at that point, lots of things stopped. The temple, for example. There was no temple any longer. So the normal training and educational processes that young people in, in uh, Israel went through, it just And the people who were taken off to Babylon had to work out, how do we keep the next generation learning about God? How do people develop as the generations go through into Bible scholars who are able to preserve the word of God and make sure everybody knows about it? And the answer was rabbis. And rabbis were teachers who'd been skilled, who'd been taught themselves back home. And they started gathering around them groups of young people whom they could train in the law of God. And uh, those schools, well, most uh, disciples were there for about three years learning from the rabbi. And then they went out from there and took on some disciples of their own and taught them. And so the whole thing went on. So what did these disciples have to do? They had to learn about the Bible, certainly, but there was more to it than that. Do you remember this diagram? The personality, mind, will, emotions. There was something to do in each of those areas. The first thing was a disciple came to a rabbi to learn to learn, to understand how to make sense of the Bible and apply it to their lives. And they, they took it very, very seriously. It's often been said that if you listen to a rabbi teaching, you could tell whose disciple he had been. A bit like all of those Anglican curates used to sound exactly like John Stott. <laughs> because they're trained from that source. And so they learned from their rabbi, this is how they do it. And they followed that method of explaining the scriptures. So learning how to make sense of the scriptures. That's the first thing. But that's only the start of discipleship. There's also the will thing. Learning to live. 
And the disciples of a rabbi had to learn to live in the way fulfilled what they were reading about in scripture. To do that, they watched the rabbi. He was not just their teacher from nine to five. He was somebody whose life was under examination all the time. There's even a story in the Jewish writing about two disciples of a rabbi who hid behind the curtains in his bedroom one night to see how he went to bed. They wanted to see in what order he took his clothes off. You know, because if he took off the right sock before he took off the left sock, they didn't want to take off the left sock before they took off the right sock. And that was the way in which the rabbis were copied. Their lifestyle was examined critically and copied by their disciples. So it was not just learning to learn, it was also learning to live. And there's a third thing in the emotion area, and that was learning to love. You see, you're never the one disciple that a rabbi had. There was always a community of disciples gathered around the rabbi. And so you shared a common purse. You did things together. You ate meals together. Uh, you slept in the same dormitory. And if one of you snored, that was just bad luck. You know, you just had to do everything together and learn to live it out in a community of people. And that's what Christianity is all about today. It's about learning to learn from scriptures. More and more, going deeper and deeper into the word of God. But not just so that you can, you can understand concepts. It's so that you can learn to live as well. And apply it all in the way that you live as different people to the rest of the world. People who are marching to the beat of a different drum, who are living a different lifestyle. And people who form a community of support for one another as well. And learn to put up with one another's uh, little uh, peculiarities and to share a growing, deepening love with other people as they grow into what Jesus has for us. And uh, you see that actually reflected in the rest of the New Testament. I said the word disciple isn't used um, outside the Gospels and Acts, and that's true. But you do find three important words that come up again and again to describe what Christians are. And the first of those is the mind word. <laughs> Believer. Somebody who knows the truth and is getting deeper and deeper into it. There's a will word. It's the word saint. A saint in the New Testament isn't, you know, a special Christian who's superpowered and better than everybody else. In fact, the word saint is used 51 times in the New Testament, and it's always in the plural. Because saints are always together. Every Christian is supposed to be a saint. And a saint simply means somebody who's different, somebody who's separated, somebody who's living a different lifestyle. The word saint comes from sanctify, which means to set apart. So saints are people who are living a set-apart lifestyle, a different lifestyle from just anybody else in the world. Uh, and and uh, the word saint always appears in the plural, except in one verse, and that's the verse that says, greet every saint. <laughs> so saints are always together. And the emotion word, well, that's easy, isn't it? It's brother or sister. Uh, the New Testament Greek uses the word adelphoi, which can mean brothers, it can also mean sisters. It means all of us. It's not a male thing. And so that word uh, says we're part of a community as well. We belong to one another. We share one another's lives. And so you see the same vision coming through the epistles that you find coming through the Gospels. And that is what Jesus was calling people to. So that leads on to our second question. How did people become disciples of Jesus? We've looked at the process a little bit. There's a lot more you can read about, obviously, in all four Gospels. But let's just make some very simple points about that. The first thing is, it was most often through somebody else's recommendation. Somebody else pointed them in that direction. I mean, look at the way it happened. John the Baptist makes his statement about Jesus. 
And on that first day, he's standing there with two of his disciples. There's Jesus walking past, and John says, Behold, the Lamb of God. That's all he said. But that was enough for his disciples to say, Okay, John, bye. And they start following Jesus instead. And they don't know what they're looking for. And they don't know what to ask him. But when Jesus uh, says, what do you want? Uh, well, where are you living? And Jesus says those magical words that reappear in John's gospel again and again after that point, actually. Come and see. <laughs> and so John the Baptist recommends uh, Jesus to Andrew and John. What's the first thing Andrew and John do? They go and find and their brothers. Andrew finds Peter. John finds James. And they start following Jesus too. Now, all four of those come from a village, a fishing village called Bethsaida. Guess what? Philip, whom Jesus invites to follow him the next day, comes from Bethsaida too. How did Philip get to know about Jesus? I guess it was from the other guys. They all came from the same small place. And I suppose it could be complete coincidence. You know, oh, well, they're from Bethsaida too. Uh, but it's much more likely, isn't it? That again, it was invitation. It was people who knew people talking about Jesus and the whole thing spreading out. And Philip goes to find Nathaniel. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth, come on. No good thing ever comes out of Nazareth. And he would say that because he came from Canaan. It was just a few miles south. And it's a bit like, I don't know, Exeter Crediton or Paynton and Torquay or whatever. Can any good thing come out of Torquay? Not if you live in Paynton, no, it can't. And, and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, Nathaniel's prejudices are overcome as well because Philip points him in the right direction. And the lesson for us from this, it seems to me, is don't leave it to preachers, to professionals, to bring people to Christ. Always be prepared to talk about Jesus to people who need him wherever you go. And it's amazing. Things spread by word of mouth from one person to another. And if you look back at the story of evangelism, that's basically the way which the church has grown down through centuries, most often through someone else's recommendation. Second thing you can say is it happened to people who were looking seriously for something. <laughs> These disciples didn't just say, oh, I can't, I'm bored, I can't think what to do, not too much on Netflix this month, oh, I think I'll be a disciple of Jesus. It didn't happen that way. It was people who were looking for something. Right from the start, those first few fishermen who followed Jesus, and incidentally they were in their late teens by the, the sound of it, we don't know for sure, but it looks as if they were about 18 or 19. Those first disciples were boys who were growing up believing that God was going to send somebody to liberate their, the, the, their people, conscious of living in a country that was hurting, uh, a culture that was, was controlled by a, a, a power from outside which was godless and, and heathen, and they wanted God to send this great deliverer who was going to change everything for them. And so they were looking seriously for that. Later on, you find Jesus inviting Matthew to follow him. And Matthew's the opposite. He's made his peace with the heathen invaders. He's a tax collector. He's collecting money from his own people for them. He's given up looking for anything idealistic. He just wants to make money. And tax gatherers creamed on so much of the profits for themselves, it was absolutely scandalous. But he knows inside he's hurting. He needs a change. He needs a different life. And so Matthew has a, a different felt need from the other guys. And this is the first of Jesus finding people who are the most unlikely convert to have, and yet they become his disciples because he's answering the needs that they've got. Lesson for us, be aware of the needs that people already feel. Because ultimately, the answer to all of the needs and the hearts that human beings have got is to be found in Jesus. They just don't know it yet. 
But if we understand the different impulses and, and longings and, and, and gaps that people sense in their own lives, that can be the start of a bridge to take the bread and need to go. And the third thing is, it took a while before those who became disciples were ready to follow completely. Jesus allowed them to hang around, come and see, to find out what was going on. He didn't tell them that, uh, I'm going to make you fishers of men. The first time he met them, they never run a mile for a start. He waited until they were ready for that. And then when he came and said, okay, the time has come, guys. I want you to drop everything right now and follow me. They were prepared. They thought it through. They were ready to make that move. And so the lesson for us, I think, is when we're helping people to discover Jesus, we need to give people time and space to make their own choice. You can't push them. You can't pressurize them. You can't twist them into becoming Christians. It's got to be their choice. And that means allowing the Holy Spirit to work in their hearts and helping them forward, being there for them, but at the same time not putting an undue pressure on them that rushes them into a decision that's not going to last. It needs to be something that they're convinced about for themselves. So we reach our third question. This is the last one. What does a disciple actually look like? Well, one of the most interesting books about the disciples, I suppose, ever was written by this guy, Alexander Balmain Bruce, great Scottish man of the 19th century. And when you look at him there, it looks like that. Uh-huh. But actually, his book is still being read today. There are just some of the, the forms from which you can buy it right now. In fact, if you've got a Kindle, bargain of the century, you can get it for 77p at the moment uh, on your Kindle. And uh, uh, people read The Training of the Twelve, which is the title of Bruce's book, uh, all over the world because it's a fantastic insight into the disciples and their character and all sorts of stuff. A bit wordy, but a good book all the same. What he says about the 12 disciples is this. The glory of the 12 was not of this world. In a worldly point of view, they were a very insignificant company indeed. A band of poor, illiterate Galilean provincials, utterly devoid of social consequence, not likely to be chosen by one having supreme regard to prudential considerations. They were the last people you'd expect. In fact, when the, the first disciples, after Jesus' death and resurrection, were in Jerusalem, they were hauled in by the authorities, and they were described as unschooled ruffians. <laughs> well, we once knew a Christian band that called itself unschooled ruffians, just on that basis. Great title for a band. And uh, they were most unlikely people. If you were going to start a worldwide cause, that was not the way to go. 25 years ago this year, somebody wrote a, a, a spoof management report sent by uh, the Jordan management consultants to Jesus, son of Joseph, at the Woodcrafters Carpenter Shop in Nazareth. Jesus apparently had asked for their help. And he said this, Dear Sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you appear for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests. We have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all tests are included, and you will want to study each of them carefully. And uh, they go on, it is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background education and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you're undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. And we feel it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. 
James the Sixth, Alpheus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings and both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. Uh, one of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your control and right-hand man. <laughs> Makes the point, doesn't it? Sometimes what you see on the outside isn't what God sees on the inside. And these disciples, unlikely as they looked, and strange bunch though they were, were just the right people. Jesus spent the whole night uh, praying before he got his list together. And uh, these are the people that God chose those disciples. There was Simon Peter, the loud-mouthed one. He couldn't open his mouth without putting his foot in it. You see that again and again, don't you, right through the Gospels. Peter is the one that makes all the other disciples face palm. Oh, Peter, oh no, he's doing it again. Shut up, Peter, please. He's embarrassing. Because he jumps into situations, he makes things happen that none of the other disciples would. There's Andrew. Andrew's the approachable one. He's the one that the little boy with five loaves and two fishes comes to see. Because he's got a friendly face, Andrew. And when Greeks come to Philip and say, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip thinks, well, what do I do about this? Andrew, Andrew, you tell me what to do. Andrew's good in that kind of situation. He knows how to deal with unusual people. James, James is the passionate one. He's the one who's always called fire to come down on people, along with his brother. But James is a leading person where this is concerned. Jesus even called themselves Boanerges, the sons of thunder. Actually, that was a name for another Christian band, I remember. And it was not an offence against the Trade Descriptions Act. I have never heard such a loud band in my life. But anyhow, that, that James and John weren't a band. They were just thundering against people all the time. And James was a particularly passionate one. John was the teachable one. Might have been James's brother. But he was also, it would appear, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Why? Because Jesus could communicate things to him. And John was younger than some of the others. He was teachable. He was somebody who wanted to learn. Philip. Philip is the one who seems just a little bit, well, I don't want to use the word thick, but I will use the word thick. Yeah, okay. He gets puzzled quite often. And you, you really don't know very often whether Philip understands. He's out of his depth a lot, a lot of the time. Lord, just... Just show us your father and that will do for us. And Philip is often asking questions which show he just doesn't understand what's going on. Duh, Jesus, you want us to feed 5,000 people? Well, I've got my calculator here and it doesn't look good. It would cost us several months' wages to feed 5,000 Oh, you've missed the point, Philip, completely. And Philip keeps missing the point. And that's one of the reasons he's there. Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, to give him his other name. He's the sincere one. Jesus says, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. That means no deception. Literally, it means no Jacob. <laughs> because Jacob, way, way back in the Old Testament, was the arch manipulator of other people. The one who was always doing things for his own ends behind people's backs. And Jesus says, there's none of that about Bartholomew. He's sincere, right through to the core. Then there was Thomas, or Didymus. Didymus means the twin. So presumably Thomas had a twin brother, or twin sister for that matter, who just didn't show up. And Thomas is a depressive one, isn't he? Oh, let's all go to Jerusalem then. We'll die with him. Why not? Yeah. Well, I don't believe Jesus has risen again. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. You're making this stuff up. Ah, don't stop trying to fool me. And Thomas is the one who always looks at the worst side of the picture. And there's Matthew, or Levi, to give him his other name. The hard-headed one. The one who's sold out. He's been a tax collector. He's screwing people for all the money he can get out of them. And uh, suddenly his life's turned around by Jesus. 
But he knew what the world was like. He'd been cynical, he'd been hard-headed, and he had a, an exposure to sides of life that the other disciples hadn't seen. James the Less, who? Well, all we know about him is his dad was Alpheus and his mother was Mary. Not that Mary, another Mary. Other than that, he was just quiet. He's there, but what's he there for? He's the forgettable disciple. He's the one who's always there, but, but what's he doing? We just don't hear much about him. Then there's Thaddeus or Jude or Levius. Now, he's got three different names in the, in the Bible. It's very confusing. And he seems to have been the likable one because Thaddeus means child of the heart and Levius means something very similar. And probably he was given those names just because he was a very likable person, a loving, warm kind of person, the kind of guy whom you meet and you just warm to straight away. And there was Simon the Zealot, who was exactly the opposite. Simon the Zealot had been a member of a vigilante group that went around Israel bumping off uh, Roman soldiers and also uh, giving a hard time to people that they didn't think, think uh, uh, patriotic enough Jews. <laughs> like um, the IRA in a few years ago in, in Ireland. Going around terrorizing people into doing what they thought was right. Simon was a hard, hard guy by the sound of it. And Judas Iscariot? Well, you see him drifting more and more into his own world, don't you? He wasn't a team tear. He was the treasurer for the group, but he was taking money for himself and the, the bag at the same time. And more and more he becomes critical of Jesus. And Jesus says to the disciples in John chapter 6, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a diabolos. A diabolos is a traitor. Somebody who's working against the group. Somebody who's developing critical thoughts in his own zone, but isn't willing to come out with them openly. And this bunch of 12 ragbag people, that's the people that Jesus chose to transform the world. What does that tell you? Well, four things just to finish with because we're over time anyway. To be a disciple, first of all, you don't have to be perfect. <laughs> Jesus chooses flawed people. Jesus chooses people who've got a lot wrong with them. If he didn't, none of us would be eligible to be disciples. But you come just as you are. And Jesus starts to do something about that afterwards. Second, you don't have to understand everything. As you watch your disciples going around, they're often three paces behind Jesus saying, what did he mean by that? What's he saying now? Where are we going? Oh, search me, I haven't got a clue. And Jesus doesn't tell his disciples everything. He keeps them often in a state of suspense. Sometimes he puts them into situations they can't cope with. They're in a boat at sea. There's a storm blowing up. They're so worried, experienced sailors as they are, that they're going to be capsized and they're all going to drown in the Lake of Galilee and not be the end of the whole Jesus project. And where's Jesus? He's asleep in the prow of the boat. Master, don't you care that we perish? Peace, be still. Huh? Just like that? that. What was Jesus doing? He allowed them to get into that situation, as he often does, so that they'd really be sweating. And then he would come along with the answer and they'd start to see something about Jesus they'd never seen before. Just like that, when, do you remember? You've got some of the disciples trying to cast demons of an epileptic boy and are getting nowhere. Get, come out to him, demon. Leave, leave, now, now. No, no, nice, nice. You don't want to tell the truth, just, just go away. And it's not working. And then Jesus comes over the hill and with a word, the boy is cured. Why is Jesus timing so bad? Why does he wait until they're absolutely at their wit's end before he steps out? Because he's showing them just how little they've got and how much he is necessary to give them the power that they need. And so you don't have to understand everything. Third, you don't have to like everybody else. You see these disciples falling out, right, left, and center, again and again. 
and Jesus is welding them slowly and painfully into a unit where they appreciate and understand one another and will be world beaters. And you will always find in your church, in the group of Christian friends that God gives you, people whom you don't naturally warm to. Simon the Zealot and Matthew must have had some really interesting conversations. Peter and Thaddeus were just poles apart from one another. One of them so loud and the other one so quiet. And yet Jesus was doing something wonderful in bringing them together and making them learn to respect and love one another. And fourth, you don't have to be outstanding. Because one of the things about the 12 disciples, when you try to look at what they did with their lives and where they died and what they left behind is, we just don't know. We know some things about some of the leading ones, but a lot of them we just don't know about. And we will only hear when we get to heaven exactly what their lives produced. We know it was sensational because we're here this morning. <laughs> we are part of the result of what they achieved. And yet, they've gone into history and there are question marks about what kind of guys were they? Where did they live? Who did they marry? What did they achieve? How did they die? We just don't know. And so if you choose to be a disciple of Jesus, you wouldn't necessarily be, have your name up in lights. You wouldn't necessarily be famous. You wouldn't necessarily feel you've achieved very much personally yourself but you'll be part of something that is absolutely world-beating. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow put it like this. I heard the call come follow, that's all. Earthly desires grew dim. I rose and followed him. <laughs> Who would not follow him if they heard his call? That's all. That's discipleship. Colin. Right. <laughs>